Well, friends, uh, I ask you to turn with me for a third time to Luke 15. The Word of God, Luke chapter 15, we are focusing on Jesus' probably His most familiar parable, the parable of the prodigal son. If it's possible for something to be best known and most misunderstood at the same time, I think this fits the bill. It is a simple story, it is a deep story that Jesus told about a lost son found, a dead son raised to life, and a shamed son restored. And in it we see the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's begin by reading the text, Luke 15. I begin in verse 11. And he said, Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look! For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Let's pray. Father, every time I'm preaching through this passage now and preparing again to do so, you are 
making me more aware of the significance of that name, Father. It really takes on a big meaning in this parable. And as we come again into your word, I pray we'll see that. And I pray we will see what it is you have to show us. I pray that that our familiarity with this story won't keep us from seeing it with clear eyes. That, That we might view you afresh and glorify how you save sinners like us. I pray that our understanding of the this parable, of, of any part of God's Word, might not be obscured by our preconceived notions. I pray that we would see you by the power of your Spirit through what Christ has accomplished in our place. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we are again. Here we are again, friends. But before we can move forward, I know I see some faces tonight that haven't been here the past couple of nights, and I am thankful for that. I appreciate you being here tonight. There's no better place you could be. I believe that with all my heart. But since we do have some people who haven't been here, and I was going to do this even if there weren't anyone else who hadn't been here, because like Scott said, we both believe in context. What is going on here? To understand anything in the Bible as fully as the Lord wants us to, it is imperative to grasp the context. So first things first, what was Jesus doing in Luke 15? What prompted Him to tell this parable? Well, remember, He was going through the towns and villages of Judea. He was on His way to Jerusalem. He was going to die there. And He knew it. And so he has spent from Luke 9, about chapter, or chapter 9, about verse 50, 51, up until he gets to Jerusalem. That whole time he's going through these towns and villages, he's doing his thing, and he is ever increasing the standard by which people must realize they must meet if they want to be his disciple. You know, we live in this time, and, and, and that quote from Ravenhill that Scott shared about us being more afraid of holiness and sinfulness, it couldn't be more true. In fact, it was also true in Jesus' day. Because we, as a church, as the church, when we see our numbers dwindling, when we see passion diminishing, we want to lower the bar of what it means to be a Christian so that we can have this big tent and everyone can feel welcome and everyone can feel good about themselves. But if you read through Luke, that's just not how Jesus operates. He says, you must deny yourself, not feel good about yourself, but you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. You have to hate your father and mother in in comparison to how you feel about me. You have to do everything. You, You have to keep my words. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Of course, that's earlier in Luke. That's Luke 6. But he's pulling no punches. His, his messages are more direct because he knows the time is coming when he's going to be nailed to a cross and be the propitiatory sacrifice. And that's just a big word for he's going to absorb the wrath of God for the sins of all he's ever going to save. He would bear in himself, 1 Peter 2.22, in his own body, our sins. So in Luke 15, he's still teaching, and it's the tax collectors and the sinners that are coming to him, to listen to him. 
And again, I remind you, we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 is one of the first verses I learned as a child. You learned the, the Romans road, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5.8, Romans 10.9. But the first one is, it points us to our need for a Savior. We've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so that applies to all of us. But, but this term, tax collectors and sinners, it, the worst kind of people were coming to Jesus to hear Him. The people that the that they were not religious people. They were the people that religious people don't usually want anything to do with. And you know, they were like Gentiles. They might have been Jewish by blood, but the religious people viewed them like Gentiles. They were so bad. And these were the gatekeepers of Jewish religion who held this opinion. The scribes and the Pharisees. So when they saw these people coming to Jesus, they grumbled. Because Jesus didn't turn them away. This man received sinners and he eats with them. And they said that with scorn. They said that with a scowl on their face. So Jesus gave them parables. And he gave them parables in part to rebuke them and in part to show them that God takes joy in saving sinners. As bad as we might be tonight, God took joy when he saved you, if he has saved you. There's joy in heaven we see when one sinner repents. He is eager to save even the worst people by His grace and mercy. And that's what this parable shows best of all. In verses 11 through 16, we saw what a sinner looks like. The younger of these two sons demanded his share of the estate well before his father's death. It was a shameful thing to do, a, a selfish thing to do. It was a request dripping with enmity toward his father. Unthankful, ungrateful, un, uh, unappreciative of his father's generosity. Essentially wishing him dead. And then shockingly the father says, okay, I'll give it to you. He gave him over to his desires. Gave his share of the estate. And as quickly as he could, the younger son went as far as he could away from his father. And he squandered everything on loose living, immoral living. So when a famine came, he had nothing left. It brought him near death. He does not return to his father. He tries to fix everything himself like we so often try to do apart from the power of God. And what did it get him? Still hungry but now feeding pigs and wishing he could eat what they're eating. There is not a scenario, again, I've said this, I'll say it again, there's not a scenario Jesus could have come up with to, de de to depict sin, to depict shame that would have beat this one. Well, then last night, verses 17, we got into verse 20, we saw what repentance looks like. What repentance looks like. The Son came to his senses. Remember how important that phrase was. He came to his senses. He realized his father gave even his hired day laborers that phrase, more than enough. John 10.10 10 is a verse we all, we all learn at some point. Hopefully you know it. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. The father gave more than enough bread to even his hired day laborers. He was generous. He was gracious. And if the son could just return and be like one of them, of course he couldn't possibly think that the father would accept him back the full way. But if he could just be a, a hired man... 
at least he would live then, he came to his senses. And again, we looked at 2 Timothy 2 and we saw that God grants the sinner repentance leading to the knowledge of truth so that we come to our senses and escape the snare of the devil. The parallel between 2 Timothy 2 and the prodigal son parable is just staggering to me. So God granted the prodigal grace. He gave him the gift of repentance. He came to his senses. He begins to see his father with clear eyes. It humbles him. But more than that, it drives him to act. It drives him to act, to move back in the direction of his father. Because that's what repentance does, beloved. That's what repentance does. It always leads the one repenting to be convicted of their sins convinced of their own unworthiness, and compelled to go back to the Father. All the prodigal could hope for was mercy. He'd shamed himself. He'd shamed his father. So he remember, he, he rehearsed his speech. I've sinned against heaven, and in your sight... he. Verse 20, he got up and came to his father. So his desperation drove him to repent. His repentance drove him to go. And now he was coming to the father. So how would you expect the father to respond? How would the scribes and Pharisees hearing Jesus tell this parable expect the father to respond? With incredulity. That's how. Shocked. The son would dare show his face. That's what he's supposed to do, of course. The Pharisees and the scribes, they get that. Make me a hired man. They're on board with that. It's right for the son to try, but you'd expect the father to not be warm, not be receptive. Upon hearing your son has come, he would be not quick to see him. Why is he back? He has shamed me. If you let him see you at all, you're going to make him wait. You're going to make him ponder what what he might find out. What he might hear from you. What does he have to do with me? He has treated me as dead. He's as good as dead to me. Let him wait. And finally, if the father agreed to see the son, you'd expect him to be ready to punish him. And deservedly so. Punish him... Put him in his place. Tell him what he's going to have to do. Tell him he's going to have to be a hired man. Tell him he's going to have to work his tail off. And the scribes and Pharisees hearing this, had Jesus said that that was the Father's reaction, they would have nodded their heads in approval. He is working his way back an eye for an eye. But instead... While they would be shocked by all of the son's actions and the father finally you know, giving him his share of the estate in the first place, that has nothing on what Jesus said next. Because how did the father respond? But while he, the son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced and kissed him. Just as the story is starting to make sense to the religious people, 
the father's response stuns them. Because now this has become the most shameful part of this entire parable. This son shamed his father, dishonored him, treated him as if dead, attached himself to the wicked world instead. And now here he is, and here's the father seeing his son in the distance, and he runs to him. Why? Why would the father do this? Why would the father trade what dignity he has left for this worthless, wicked, profligate son who has wasted his fortune on the the, the ugliest kind of immoral living, who has attached himself to wickedness, who has made himself unclean? How in the world, why in the world would the father do this? He ran to him. And friends, Near Eastern, Middle Eastern nobles didn't run. I'm wearing slacks tonight. They usually didn't. So to run, they would have to pull up their robe, exposing their legs in the process, and that was a no-no in the culture. That was a, a shameful thing to do in the culture. So why would he do this? I mean, because for all... This son had done, the father's love had never changed. Neither height nor depth nor any created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He had compassion for him. Compassion, and that word compassion in the Greek, it refers to a yearning. From the bowels. It's an expression of deep feeling from the very center of oneself. For all the ways his son had shamed him, the father never stopped feeling for him deeply from the very heart of himself. Never stopped caring about him. Never stopped loving him. So then why not, why not just wait? If you're going to shame yourself by picking up your toga or your robe or whatever you want to call it and running to Him, why not just wait? If He's already on His way to you, why not just wait for Him to get to you when the sun's... You know, he's coming this direction anyway. This is where we see how much He loved His Son. And this, this would have... By the way, this would have sent the scribes and Pharisees' heads spinning. The Father ran to Him because... Not for one more second did he want his son shamed. Not for one more second did he want his son to endure any indignity. He wanted it to cease immediately. And there's no doubt once his son got into the village, that's exactly what would have happened. You would have had people around seeing him come back, heaping insults. You would have probably even seen the father's servants heaping insults. And rightly so. It would be fair for them to do that. And the son would have had no choice but to take it, to endure it, as he made that shameful strut to his father. But the father ran to him instead. The father said, I don't want my son to be shamed anymore. I will take the shame upon myself. The father did the work. The Father did the work. 
Before his son could even make it into town, into his presence, he sees him in the distance. And instead of his son enduring any more shame, the father takes the shame upon himself. The father takes it upon himself to condescend to his already shamed son and runs to him and embraces him and kisses him. The father bears in his own body the shame of his son. This is the gospel. This is how God saves sinners. We realize we're not right before God. So what do we do? We say, I do the best I can. I go to church. I try to be nice to people. I'm better than most. I I admit... I admit I'm not perfect. I've even made some bad mistakes. I don't have it all together. And that was the prodigal's plan. To say something kind of equivalent to that. To go back and talk about himself and what he had done. But instead of the sinner bearing the shame, bearing the punishment, the father came running. God comes running to the sinner, friends. Through His Son Jesus, God has come running. Through Jesus, God embraces the sinner. Through Jesus, God bears the shame the sinner deserves, takes it upon Himself. Through His Son Jesus, God has taken the punishment of sinners. Can we just dwell on that for a second? That's what happened to Jesus. He was spit on, beaten up, mocked, stripped bare. His body was ripped apart by whips. And that was all before he got nailed to the cross. This is what God did for all he will ever save. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.13 And here, the father in this parable, mercy triumphed over judgment. He ran to his son. He embraced his son. He kissed his son. The shamed father showing his shameful son affection. This is forgiveness. This is the setting aside of past wrongs and the restoration of what should have been all along. This is what forgiveness looks like. And for the sinner who repents, this is what God does for all who come in repentance. This this is what God does for all who entrust themselves to Jesus. Scott said a few minutes ago how... God created us in His image. Male and female, in the image of God, He created us. He created us for for perfect fellowship, but we broke that fellowship off through Adam. Man sinned and willfully broke off fellowship with God. We're supposed to be with Him. We're supposed to have perfect fellowship with Him. Sin is what doesn't belong. Are we afraid of holiness? Because it's sin that doesn't belong. 
Sin is what corrupts and sin is what has to be done away with. But we can't do it. Not one of us, nor any collection of us, has it in us to fix our sin problem because sinners can't save sinners. Sinners can't save themselves, but God can and God does and God has. Today, friends, the Father embraces all who are coming to Him. Are you coming to Him? Has God granted to you the gift of repentance? Has God brought you to a place where you've come to your senses? Have you come to the knowledge of the truth? And what is the knowledge of the truth? Have you come to understand the depths of your own sinfulness? Have you come to understand just how far short you fall of the glory of God? Have you come to understand how you have shamed yourself, how you can't fix yourself, and that it takes Jesus, all He has, for all He ever will save, who will come to Him by faith, repenting. He, he endured the shame of the cross. This is what the grumbling scribes and Pharisees listening to Jesus wouldn't have understood. They wouldn't connect these dots and see that in this story Jesus was telling, the Father was God in Christ... The sinner was the son, and here was God showing mercy on the repenting sinner, enduring the shame in his place. Jesus was telling these scribes and these Pharisees just why he was spending this time with these worst of the worst people. Because this man receives sinners. God receives sinners, scribes. God receives sinners, Pharisees. And today, Red Branch Baptist Church and any who are in here and any who will ever listen to this, God saves sinners. God the Father, through the work of His Son Jesus, accepts us back into His presence. He runs to us. He does the work. Jesus did the work. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. In Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, despising its shame. He died for the lives of those who repent. All who come to the Father, the Father runs to them instead. God embraces us. God kisses us. God shows us the deepest affection. Now look at the son in verse 21. He has to be shocked that his father has run to him. And it's even being nice to him. He doesn't know how to respond, so he just falls back on his prepared remarks. Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer to be worthy. Uh, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But notice... Before the son can say, make me as one of your hired men, before he can get to that part, the father intercedes. And he says, quickly to his servants, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. Why? Verse 24, for this son of mine was dead. And has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Before he could even get the words out, the Father has made it clear, you are mine. 
The scribes and the Pharisees would have expected the father to be incredulous that his son had the audacity to ever show his face again. But now listening to this, hearing what the father did, they would have been absolutely apoplectic. This is the worst thing they've heard so far. For the father to do this, how could he not think about his own honor? How could he run to him? How could he embrace him? How could he kiss him? They were waiting. They were wanting to hear the son get put in his place. They were waiting to hear the son tell his father, make me like a hired man. But the father didn't even let him get that far. Bring me the best robe, a ring, sandals, without delay, quickly. He's not going to have his son be anything less than a son. What he has in mind is what has been lost. Restored, full fellowship. He has the best robe put on him. The best robe. Whose robe do you think that was? It was his. He's the master of his house. He's the patriarch of his family. His robe is the best robe. He's the head of his house. Put my robe on my son. We come to the Father naked, friends. In fact, if you're coming to the Father anything less than stripped bare, you're not truly repentant. We come to Him filthy sinners, stripped bare by our own lack of righteousness, but God the Father clothes us in His righteousness. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God in Christ. He placed our sin on Christ and He places Christ's righteousness on us. This is a picture also of Isaiah 61 with regard to God saving the unworthy. Listen to this. Instead of your shame, you will have a double portion and instead of humiliation, they will shout for joy over their portion. So God takes our shame, God takes our humiliation away because Christ has borne it in our place. And then Isaiah says more. He's God speaking. I will, uh, well, Isaiah here. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. Listen to this. For He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. I wish I could remember the, the lyrics to a song that just popped in my mind called The Robe. Something like, And the robe is of God that restores my righteousness. And the robe is His grace. Come as you are. I almost got that right, I think. 
I suspect this part of Isaiah 61 did not occur to the scribes and Pharisees as they heard this. I suspect it slipped their mind even though they were the experts in the law, experts in the word. I suspect they were blinded by their hatred of Jesus to even process this. But the best robe, that's what this is. This is a picture of God wrapping us up in His righteousness. As if to say, all that I have is yours. All that I have is yours. You were naked. You were unclean. You were shamed. You know, that's how, that's how anyone comes to Christ. Romans 4, 5. He justifies who? The ungodly. Christ died. Uh, he, he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Why? Because there are none righteous, not even one. We were helpless, hopeless enemies, but not anymore. Because God clothes us in His robe, His righteousness. He doesn't simply restore us. He gives us more than we could possibly ask or imagine. And the point being that God's grace is greater than our sin. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There was, the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide. Whiter than snow you may be today. Is that familiar to anybody? Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see His face, will you this moment His grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Would the scribes and Pharisees hear it? We'll talk more about that and see how the older brother responded tomorrow night. But tonight, don't miss this. Will you hear it? Have you heard it? Do you hear it? Have you received God's grace? Has God made you alive and given you the gift of repentance? Has God revived your dead heart so that you have come to the end of yourself realizing it's only with the Father you can live? Have you come to Him recognizing your unworthiness? If we survey the New Testament, friends, we see there's no place for coming to Him halfway. You know, there's, there's no such thing really in, in Scripture as a carnal Christian. There's no such thing in, in Scripture as halfway Christianity. No place for a compartmentalized life where we follow Jesus in some ways, but in other ways we're just going to do things how we want to, where we choose the, the times and the places and the ways in which we want to surrender to Jesus' Lordship. There's no place for that. What did we sing two nights ago? I surrender all. Has God revived you to the part where you're sur- to the point that you're surrendering all to Him? 
And we sang last night, what, just as I am. Have you come to Him just as you are, realizing He will transform your life and not leave you where you are? If so, that means that He has clothed you with the righteousness of His Son, that He has restored you to full fellowship with Him, so that you might live as His son or daughter now, and enjoy the benefits of sonship forever. But if you have not come to Jesus like this, and tonight you need to look yourself in the spiritual mirror and ask, have I come to Jesus like this? What are you waiting for? Because the Father is eager to run to you. Jesus Christ is eager to run to you. The Father bids you come. Jesus commands you to come and He will run to you. He will embrace you where you are and bring you where He wants you to go. It doesn't matter what kind of life you've lived. It doesn't matter what kind of sins you've committed. It doesn't matter what kind of mistakes you're still making. Jesus saves the worst of the worst. By His grace, God giving us what we don't deserve. By God's mercy, God not giving us what we don't deserve. Or what we do deserve. Thank you. This is what forgiveness looks like. God won't hold your sins against you because Jesus has paid the price. He's born in His body your shame. If you want revival, then ask God to remove your sinfully stained garments. Because at the cross, as it was sung earlier, love runs red and our sins are washed white. That's forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, help us to see how utterly unworthy we are apart from You. How there is... What your, what your Word says, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. All have turned aside. All have gone astray. And it's only by your grace that anyone is saved, Father. We thank you for the Gospel. We thank you that when we couldn't pay the debt, when we, when, when, when we could only come back to you filthy and defiled, You sent Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You sent Him to be our perfect sacrifice so that we could be His perfect righteousness, so that we could be saved. Father, tonight, help us comprehend the incomprehensible gospel. Help us rightly esteem the inestimable grace the inestimable price that your Son paid in our place. Grant to us the grace tonight to respond in obedient faith. Your Word says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, our ambition, rather at home, rather absent or present, is to be pleasing to you. And we can through Christ. 
You are worthy of this, Father. You are worthy. May we live and respond in a manner that reflects your worthiness. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.